Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to Life's Third Act. I'm flying solo today, uh, but I want to I want to use this opportunity uh, with Jill not here today. Uh, I thought that I would talk about some things that I kind of have more of a personal interest in and that I hope you will find useful too. Uh, keep in mind our focus is on providing you, people over age 65, useful information, and hopefully it's interesting, dare I say even enjoyable. So with that, I'll plunge into just some thoughts that I have. Keep in mind that, you know, I'm not an investment expert. Um, I don't pretend to be. However, you know, I follow markets. Um, I follow economics. Um, I'm an avid reader relating to this topic. But at the end of the day, you know, even experts are wrong. uh, So it's difficult to know who to listen to. So I'll just tell you, you know, the things that I think about when I'm trying to make some of the same decisions that I think you are having to make on a regular basis. And among those, I suspect many of you might be asking yourselves is, how do I find the cash to be available to meet my rising costs of living? Um, before we talk about inflation, I, I want to just suggest to you that that one thing that people simply rule out without good reason typically, is the possibility that they'll sell their house. I mean, let's face it, the single asset in which most of your value is sitting, most of your net worth, I would argue, unless it's 401k or IRAs, that's a possibility. But second to that, at worst, and probably of, of greater equity than that, is the value that you have in your home. But people won't consider selling their home And even people, though, who are moving out of their home are assuming that I'm going to need that cash because I'm going to buy something else or I'm going to buy into a long-term living facility. First of all, I'd say as to the latter, most now you don't have to buy into. I think the trend is away from a large front-end equity payment if you're going to move into some sort of communal living, um, this transitional neighborhoods that allow you to sort of – move progressively from independent living to assisted living to skilled living, potentially. Um, There's this continuum that's popular among a number of of communities. But even those now are starting to require, if not no initial payment, it's lower. So here we have all this equity sitting in your house. And I would argue that, that really that is the gold mine that you need to access in order to live the quality of life that you want to live. There's simply no reason that that people in America have to own their homes. I mean, think about how liberating it is to, if you could sell your home, get all the equity out of it, and still have the ability to continue living there. But you pay rent. So that means you don't worry about gutters. You don't worry about mowing the yard. You don't worry about all those things that you could pass along to the landlord. That can be negotiated. But I can tell you that there are a number of companies now that are focusing on doing this. I think it's a marvelous concept. I think that's the single best source for someone who's 65 and not prepared to go out and work really, really hard for about five more years and saving every penny in order to accumulate you know, this, this fund that will allow them 
to have passive income or passive source of, of funds to live the life they want to live. So think about it. Think about the possibility now, especially when you have such an incredible market. I, we'll talk about real estate more in a few minutes, but it might be a wonderful time to sell your home or to do a transaction with somebody who will buy your home and let you sign a five-year lease to stay in it or whatever the lease may be. Maybe you want a shorter lease. Maybe you want a one-year lease. But you can have a five-year lease that had a provision that in the event of your death or having to move into long-term care, then you'd be released from the lease. That, that, would, be a, that would be something that an investor would find very reasonable because they would interpret it to mean that you can't just move out for any reason. It's got to be necessity. Which, including death or moving into this facility. So uh, that's safe for an investor. They have a marvelous person living in the house who they know is going to take care of it because they have. And meanwhile, um, you have a place to stay with a fixed amount, f- fixed payment every month. So I suggest that, that you consider when you think about planning how you're going to pay for your life when you retire, think about that, that, that huge asset that you're sitting on and ask yourself, do I really need to own this? And I suggest to you that for most of you, the answer should be no, you don't. But let's talk about, though, how you plan apart from that for what your costs are going to be over time. This inflation that we've seen the last year and a half, it's just amazing to me to watch. And and no one could have predicted it. I guess all of us can, can predict when we are looking in the rearview mirror, we can say, well, of course, there was all this quantitative easing, all this money that was pumped into the economy. There was fiscal spending. There were people who were locked down and they needed to, they had this pent up desire to go out and live and enjoy life. And meanwhile, we have this development of technology that occurred. So technology has, you know, progressed 10 years and two years in some ways. That's true. Uh, because of the necessities associated with this. So there have been a lot of forces at work, some I named and doubtlessly a, a number of them that I that I didn't identify and some I don't even know about. But here we are. We have a rate of inflation that the latest official number, 7.1%. I think later this week we're going to hear that uh, the new rate for the last month is going to be on an annualized basis. It's going to be 7.3%. could be 76 so you clearly see this is going up. And this is a CPI that that is not reflective of what that same percentage would have been or what the calculation would have been for CPI 25 years ago. But here we are. I mean, we're dealing with inflation that has lasted much longer than the Fed said. The Fed said it was going to be transient. Clearly, it's not transient. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, now that the Fed has recognized that there's an emergency that needs their attention, uh, now, are they going to pull out the fire hose and and commit such um, effort to this that they're going to manage to extinguish virtually all growth in the economy? And per some have suggested, and certainly the Fed has the ability to send us into a recession. Um, one thing that that we know follows is if the Fed decides to raise rates sufficiently, over a short period of time, there's no question they have the ability to tank the economy. That cause and effect is well settled. Volcker, you know, he was appointed in 79. 
as Carter wrapped up his years and as Reagan came in, he had the support of the presidents, including Reagan, even though it was going to be really unpopular and Reagan's first year was going to be pretty painful for America because we had to extinguish those flames of, of that excess that occurred in the 70s. Uh, but uh, Volcker was determined. He didn't care about the political cost. And he said, he said, I know how to lower these rates. And he cranked the Fed rate up to, I don't know, I think it was north of 14%. Actual rates, you know, borrowing rates at the time got up to 20, 21% with credit cards. And, and I think that it took about a year to a year and a half for the economy to recover, but it did. So one thing that you and I know is we know the Fed has the ability to slam on the brakes and stop stop the inflation. Um, but it can be painful. And one thing worse than than inflation is deflation. And at least with inflation, you have lots of economic activity. Uh, true, you're dealing with rising prices, but but often in inflation, you have full employment and you have uh, factories and, and other companies working at, at full tilt. Doesn't have to happen that way. You know, we found out in the 70s that you can have this thing called stagflation, which was not predicted uh, by many of the best economists. Many of the best economists thought that there was, you know, this seesaw relationship between, you know, you can have full employment, but that means inflation, or you can can get rid of inflation, but your employment's going to come way down. So it's kind of like, you know, choose your medicine, neither tastes good. But, but their goal really was to find, you know, this equipoise between these two extremes. And that's why I think whenever the Fed announced uh, that they wanted to shoot for a 2% inflation, I think they were trying to find that sweet spot where uh, there'd be a little bit of inflation enough to assure that there was business growth and activity, and at the same time, not so high that it produced, you know, the crises that inflation eventually does. But... Um, but putting aside stagflation, though, I think that the Fed has to ask itself, and we haven't seen stagflation, incidentally, yet, uh, and we may not pass through that phase at all. But but the Fed is trying to decide, you know, can we land this plane, you know, what they call the soft landing? Can we bring it down in such a way that it's not traumatic to industry, that you don't see a lot of layoffs, that you don't see unemployment skyrocket? all the other things that happen during recessions. Can we bring this plane down so that it just gently returns us, gets us down to maybe that 2% inflation rate, and then we just move right along at that equilibrium level? And a lot of experts that I respect, Larry Summers among them, they, they seem to think, no, the Fed has waited too long. They're, the nature of inflation is such that there's a feedback loop. Inflation is while some would say, uh, Milton Friedman would say that it's entirely a monetary thing. It it it's relates entirely to the supply of money. You if you increase the supply of money, you have inflation, et cetera. But I don't think it's that simple. Because if it were that simple, then why did Japan not have lots of inflation when they started cranking up their printing presses in the nineties in an effort to bring their their economy back to life. You know, they had this huge recession after the roaring, what their roaring twenties, our roaring twenties were their uh, roaring eighties. So their roaring eighties, you remember when there was all this growth, they were buying 
uh, high rises in New York City. We were worried where this Japanese was Japan going to own America. Uh, there was that talk in the eighties. Those of you and you are old enough to to remember those days. Well, the nineties that you know the party ended and it came crashing down for Japan. But but the the reason I question Milton Friedman's simple definition, I'm sure obviously Friedman. Nobel Prize winner, genius. I'm a huge fan of his. So obviously he has an answer to this. But if he were alive, I would ask him that, how can you say it's simply the supply of money if if you can have Japan where they print all this money and you they couldn't get inflation? They were trying to push up their currency and they just couldn't. I mean, they kept printing money. And and what was happening was the 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 culture is very conservative. They weren't spending it. So while you were, it looked like you were increasing the money supply, if people instead took the money and put it under their mattress or maybe set it in a bank account, but the point is it didn't make its way into circulation. Businesses were not, were not going to those banks and borrowing that money and putting it into, it's called the velocity of money. It, it, never, it never had the effects that an increase in the supply of money would. So maybe what Milton Friedman is really saying is, look, if you increase the supply, the circulation, I'll use the word circulation, then yeah, it definitely means you have inflation. End of discussion. Well, if you if you say circulation means that people are spending it, uh, then you've you've accounted for this phenomenon where you can print money and people can be so worried about their futures that they decide to put it on a shelf. And so it's not really out there. It's not circulating. So it's almost like it doesn't exist. And that's the reason you have printing presses going and you're not seeing the inflation rate go up. But, but let's put that aside for a minute. We, we know that, that there is this psychological dimension of inflation. And maybe that's kind of what I just said. I mean, that explains it. You print money, but the printing didn't produce the inflation. It's the mindset that I'm going to go out and spend it. And then when you have that mentality, that's what produces inflation. So and, uh, psychologists would be quick to point out, social psychologists, um, I think there are, there's a field of economic psych- psychology, but they would be quick to say, well, really what we're talking about is entirely this social phenomenon. So people, once people think that there's inflation, it's all about expectations. So when you hear people talking about inflation, you hear them using phrases like, well, it depends on what people believe or what their expectations are. And, and it's less about the money supply because if their expectations are that things are going up, then it's self-fulfilling. They go up. So they insist on higher wages. So they strike. They say, we need more money. Things are going up. So employers increase their pay. Employers and then turn around and say, well, gee, I need to increase the cost of my goods. That's happening everywhere, everywhere, whether it's law firms, whether it's doctors, whether it's factories, you name it, prices are being raised. But I guarantee you, all those places are increasing the cost. They're, they're having their employees say to them, look, we want more money or we're going elsewhere. Or they're simply going elsewhere. And now they're, they're realizing, oh, we got to... We, we've got to, to keep our people. So they increase the, the wages of the people they got, and now they start running ads for 20 30% higher for the position of somebody who just left that had been there for a long time making a lot less. So I think inflation is not something that, that normally can be extinguished as quickly as, as I mentioned a few moments ago. But, but these are the thoughts that I have is, on the one hand, I know when inflation gains a certain momentum, it can, it can you know, produce this this snowball that's rolling down a hill. And on the other hand, 
I know that the Fed has incredible power that if they decide to to do what Volcker did um, in 79 and 80, then I'm confident that they can still extinguish all this momentum that we've talked about. But the question is not theoretically, can they? Uh, let's get past that. If they increased rates one and a half percent, for example, in one on, on one increase, which some people are thinking the highest you could expect in March would be a half a point. Uh, but let's assume they, they did just the sake of discussion, they went two points. Yes, I think inflation would be gone. Everything that I've read, everything I've studied, the opinions of the people that I listen to that I respect, I think inflation would be gone. But the real question is, what will the Fed do? And I don't think the Fed has the stomach to incur the wrath of the Democratic Party that's hoping to win an election in November. So while they'll tolerate you know, an economy that has to be um, uh, reined in, they'll, they'll tolerate that to a degree. But if it becomes too immense to where there's a lot of suffering around October, then I think that, that this Fed chairman would be under a lot of pressure throughout the Democratic Party, Congress as well as the White House. But I do think that this Fed, that Powell, is determined to do something, and, and he will raise rates. So here's where I end up. I end up thinking that inflation won't be stomped out the way that it could be. I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think there's the, the, the appetite for that. Uh, there are too many quarters of the economy that are profiting from this inflation. I mean, I have to tell you, if you own real estate, you're not complaining. Uh, if, you, if you're a bank on Wall Street, of course, they seem to make money, whatever's going on. And we know why that is. There's a lot of political versus business power in, uh, in Washington that, that protect these banks. But when you look at other economies or other industries around the country, there are exceptions, but many are doing quite well. I mean, no question that this, you know, this epidemic, this pandemic has produced uh, prosperity for a lot of, a lot of companies. And doubtlessly, there are exceptions. So what do I think that Powell do? I think he'll increase the best people I read tell me, and I believe, that, that he'll maybe do as much as a half a point increase in March, that some are predicting five or six increases this year. I don't think the question is whether he can do five or six. I think the question is, you know, how harshly does the economy respond? And if you see a harsh response from the economy, if you see the market crash, it's going to stop. I guarantee you, he won't continue it. So, it might be that that he starts reinjecting quantitative easing. He he will cease the quantitative tightening, which means getting rid of what's on their balance sheets right now, which is almost ten trillion dollars of of debt that they've bought in the marketplace. Which means that's the way that they inject money into the market and into the the, the money supply. So. They're sitting on this $10 trillion that they say they're going to start unloading. So that means putting it, that means when they unload the, their debt, what they're doing is sucking money out of the economy because when they sell the debt, they take money out and they retire it. So that's the way $10 trillion would disappear from circulation. Just like when they, when they originally sold the debt or rather bought the debt, that injected $10 trillion. So now when they sell it, they'll take back the $10 trillion. Uh, and, and it's, you know, what effect will that have? Well, certainly it'll have a substantial effect. Maybe shocking, but, but the real focus now, though, is raising interest rates. And it's less about, you know, the quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. 
So I'm telling you all this. I don't want to be wonkish when I talk about this, and I don't want to bore you. Some of you, I realize, are more interested in this discussion than others. So, so let, let me try to get to more practical things based on what I just said. Do I think that the market is a safe place for you to have some money um, as you as you retire and you live your life and you have expenses daily, but in the meantime, with what you do have, you'd like to earn a reasonable return, but you want to do it safely? I'm going to impute to you, if you're 70 years old, a 30-year horizon. Now, some of you may be very cynical about that, uh, but I just think technology being what it is, biotechnology, you know, the, the sort of developments we've seen in vaccines and all these other things, I think that, you know, we've got a plan on a 100-year hundred year lifespan, which means a 30- to 40-year horizon. If you're 80, I think you should plan on a 20-year horizon. And And the reason that needs to be said is that if you'd been talking to a retirement planner, certainly 20, 30 years ago, then the assumption would be that that when you're 60, you plan for 25 years of retirement, uh, or 65 was 25 years of retirement. Uh, and that seemed reasonable at the time. That was definitely consistent with lifespan con- uh, expectations. In fact, it was above lifespan expectations. So um, that has changed, and and I'm afraid that the models haven't. So I'm afraid people are still basing their plans upon a much shorter horizon. Now, I admit that that it there is something attractive about using a shorter horizon. It means that for a given amount of money, you have a better standard of living. I, I don't, you know, and I know that that if you decide that that you're going to plan for 40, 30 years, for example, or if you're 60, 40 years, and you end up living 20, well, you might say, well, gee, I lived with austerity longer than I should have. Well, hopefully you're not living with austerity. But but I would say that, look, that's that's what it costs for insurance. Insurance means you incur costs because you don't want to live with certain risks. Well, this is an insurance cost. Um, so I suggest that you go with a longer time horizon. And if you're doing that, then you're asking yourself, well, where do I put this money? And that's a tough call. Um, I've personally, I've, I've invested fairly heavily in real estate. Um, I, I like real estate, always have. Real estate has not always performed wonderfully by any means. Uh, it's really been crazy the last two years, really crazy. And so much so that I think there's got to be a correction. So you have these two radical schools of thought, and I, I read both. There's the school that says, look, there's absolutely no reason to expect there to be a crash or put differently, that there's a bubble in the real estate market. And those who argue there's not a bubble will point to a couple of things. There's not the percentage of debt associated with the purchase of houses that there was in 06, 07, and 08. Um, that at that time, remember, there were those loans, those ninja loans, uh, where you had no income, no assets. You, uh, you essentially walked in and got a loan. So those days are pretty much gone. It's my understanding that that the you know in excess of eighty five to ninety percent of the loans that are issued now are issued to people with credit scores above like six fifty or six hundred. So these are people who who you know would otherwise have pretty decent credit. And I think that in this market, 
you don't have the feverish run-up that you had in the past. Now, some will say, yeah, but it's been feverish the last year and a half. Well, yeah, but it wasn't feverish for 10 years before that, meaning the period from, what, 2010 to, to 2020, um, I wouldn't. I don't think anybody would characterize that as a go-go years for real estate. I mean, it went up a little bit. Some of those years, it didn't go up much at all, but it went up a little bit. So some would say that that really we've had some population growth, although that's an entirely different subject. Uh, we've we're we're not we're not growing in population at the rate we should. That's going to have an implication for real estate values and a lot of other values in this economy as well as economies around the world. So over a twenty year period, I'd say that's an issue. But but the ten year period we're talking about now. Um, there's been some, there's been some population growth. And I think that, that the case could, could be made that while prices went up in a crazy way, they still haven't gone up to compensate for this demand, the, this, the, the supply that wasn't uh, provided over the last 10 years. I mean, let's face it, all those companies that went out of business in, in between 08, 09, 10, 11, all those companies, you know, uh, set an example for those that survived. And that's that they didn't want to take those sorts of can- chances going forward. So there was this conservatism in the market. Plus you had legislation that was passed through Congress that limits what, what banks can and can't lend for. So, um, so there have been some checks on the market. Then there's this other school of thought that says, uh, wait, we're definitely in a bubble. And then they make the population argument that, um, that when you look at the number of homes that have been built and you look at the fact that there are a million homes right now in which construction permits have been issued as of this was a uh, first of January, um, there had been construction permits issued for a million plus homes in the U.S. And many say there is not additional demand to account for that, uh, that, that would make a market that would produce the prices that we have now. So um, others say this has got to be a bubble and it's inflated so fast and so hard that it's going to be a correction in the same way. So I'm a little bit of the school of thought that there will be a little bit of a correction. I don't think there will be a crash because I don't think I don't think prices are crazy high yet. They are in some markets. You know, we've, we don't expect every market to respond the same way. We know that. Uh, Remember what happened in in the Great Recession. Phoenix, Las Vegas, I mean, these were Miami. I mean, these were cities that that had incredible run-ups and then incredible run-downs. And I think that that's the sort of thing we can expect, even where we don't have a great recession, but simply a recession. And I think under those circumstances, you will see prices come down, but I don't think dramatically, except in a few of those markets. So we're in St. Louis. St. Louis has had a very moderate increase. For those of you in other cities, if you're, if you're off the eastern seaboard or you're off the west coast, you probably didn't see a lot of appreciation. Matter of fact, some places in the northeast uh, suffered depreciation. But I, so I think real estate is promising in a lot of ways. I would be leery about buying it now. Uh, but I do think there's, there should be a place in your portfolio for passive ownership of real estate. And you can do that through ETFs. 
um, you can do it through limited partnerships. There's lots of limited partnerships where you put in money and you, of course, you're committing to not take it out for a while. But if you go online and you look, look in the, I guess you could go to one of the larger financial websites and, and you could consider, for example, uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg is a pretty reliable site. Uh, but look up ETFs or look up real estate limited partnership. They're called syndications. And with syndications, you do commit for a while, but you have no risk of liability beyond the amount you, you invest. Um, but they're, most of them are operating with long-term leases if they're commercial. And there are some buys now in the commercial market because offices and other storefronts took a big hit initially. So, uh, but let's talk about the stock market. In the stock market, I would say, I suggest that you stay away from the technology stocks. Those are stocks that will be most heavily hit by increased interest rates. And uh, I won't try to explain that uh, except to say that uh, the way you calculate the value of a company is on its future earnings. So um, you, you say, well, how do you calculate what the, what the present value of those future earnings is? Well, it's based on the current interest rate. So it means that as interest rates go up, you take a given sum that you expect to get from a company 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And with some of these technology companies, that has to be the expectation because there's not anything in the foreseeable future but there's promise down the road. So if you increase the interest rate by which you measure your rate of return, then it suddenly pushes down the value of that stock. Trust me, if you sit down with pencil and paper and think about this, you'll understand it. It does make sense. You raise the interest rate and the present value of money that you would have gotten in the future becomes less. You lower the interest rate and, it, and the company becomes worth more. Um, that'll require some thought. But anyway... I think that that technology stocks, which have already been hit hard, some say now they're a bargain. Some are fifty percent off what their their highs were. I don't know. I still am skeptical that they're a bargain. Some may be. Uh, Kathy Woods ETF, Arc. Uh, some say is a bargain now. It's at fifty percent of what it was, and 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 she's pretty good at picking good companies. So they're not they're not you know sort of wild um, hopes or or. Um, simply uh, some of the uh, what some of the technology companies that came along were nothing more than an idea and a hope uh, but but these these represent solid companies with solid technology and science behind them and products many of them have cash sitting around already many have an excess of a, a billion dollars sitting in their account so they can burn through a, a long period of time where they don't have any real profit they can keep going because they have you know, they, they were frugal with the money that they raised in their early fundraising. Um, so ARC is something that you might think about, but I still think technology is high. I think the safest thing is what Warren Buffett would tell you. Warren Buffett would tell you, look, I don't invest in things that, that are difficult for me to understand. I don't invest in things that, that are too futuristic. He said, I like to bet on things that I know, like, you know, he invests in foodstuffs. He invests in, um, commodities. Uh, he would say manufacturers of, of um, food supplies, uh, anything that we know during a recession that we're going to require to live, those are the fundamental things that they will always be a market for. People will always need toilet paper, for lack of a better example. 
People will always need cereal, so General Mills, for example. Any of these companies that you know, whatever happens, come hell or high water, you know that these companies are going, their products will be needed. So if it's a solid company, you know, those are pretty safe bets, even in a recession. And there are lots of those. Those are called companies with, they're called value companies because they have low P.E. ratios. P.E. means that's if you take the uh, uh, the value per share of the company and divide it by the earnings. So if you take that, you can have like a 10 to 1 P.E. ratio. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty cheap. Some are below that. Some are 8 to 1. Compare that to a lot of the high-flying tech companies where it's 25, 27, 30 to 1. I mean, that's a pretty long shot. And those that aren't profitable at all, it's infinity. You don't, you can't have a PE ratio because, because they're, they don't have any earnings. So it's literal infinity. Um, you're buying something that has zero earnings, just the hope of earnings. But even those that are earning something, still you have PE ratios that are just incredibly stretched out. So if you stick with the fundamentals, if you buy into ETFs and others that are that are geared toward what's called value funds. The value meaning five to one. The idea is that that's a bargain. That's a good value. Um, and six to one, 10 to one, 11, 12, 13. Those are all solid if you're talking about commodities, et cetera. Some are 15 to one. But um, if I were giving you advice, which I guess I can't since I'm not uh, or I shouldn't put it that way since I'm not a investment professional. But I would say to you that those are the things that attract me. And uh, and if you're looking at what to do with your money at this point in time with so much uncertainty and you don't want to stick it under your mattress, uh, bonds are too unpredictable. Depending on what interest rates do, their values could could swing wildly. It does seem safe to think about putting your money in value stocks it's better than sitting on the sidelines. And even if we get a recession, you're not going to be wiped out with those stocks. They'll come down a little bit, but they're going to trudge along. They've made it through other recessions. And I would say for those of you who have the stomach for real estate, uh, I think that that in the right markets where there's not been big run-ups, like in middle America, I think that there's still opportunities with real estate. Some of you don't want anything, understand you don't want anything that you have any responsibility for. So you'd, you'd be looking for a passive investment like a REIT or an ETF. So those are out there. Anyway, these are my thoughts on investment. Uh, I know some of you this this show will appeal to. I know I'm confident some of you it will not. I didn't intend for it to be technical or wonkish. I've kind of sat here and just shared with you my thoughts, kind of a stream of consciousness almost. So right or wrong, you kind of know what, at least what I'm thinking in the way that I, I look at the world now um, from a financial standpoint. So I hope this was helpful. Um, We will have Jill back soon and other guests. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.